Hello everyone, Simon here. Just a few announcements before our normal intro. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for listening to Philosophy Takes on the news and spending time with us. We really do appreciate it. Um, over the first few episodes, uh, we've gained quite a few followers and we've had lots of lovely comments. We really do appreciate it. Thanks. Um, if you are a professional philosopher and you fancy taking part, please don't be shy. Just get in touch with me at my University of Kent email address. I'd love to hear from you. In particular, uh, I'm keen that we spread our wings a little bit. Um, as we've been starting up, we've, we've been focusing very much on UK-based philosophers, but I'm keen to hear lots of international voices um, from around the world. So please, please do contact me if you want to appear. Um, this is episode seven, uh, as you'll hear in a moment. Um, there will be an episode eight, um, but we won't be recording next week. We're just taking a little bit of a break. Uh, we'll probably be recording and publishing sometime mid-April, and then we'll be going, all being well, on a long run um, to the end of June with lots of episodes, lots of guests, lots of news stories, I'm sure. Um, because we're not recording next week, this is a slightly different episode. So we've got our normal setup, three guests, three main topics whizzing off in all sorts of directions to come. Um, but at the end, um, there will be a special discussion with me and one guest. We're talking about a particular topic. Um, so that'll be a fourth segment right at the end. So please listen to the end for that. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you enjoy the whole episode. Um, and with all those announcements said, uh, it's now time for the normal intro. This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 31st of March. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue. Uh, peace talks are occurring, but with scepticism on both sides. As well as the thousands who've been killed, millions of people have now fled Ukraine. The UK's Metropolitan Police have announced they will soon issue the first fines following the so-called Partygate affair at number 10 Downing Street and in Los Angeles, one man hit another man at some awards ceremony. This week we'll be thinking about those three topics, the situation in Ukraine, what should now happen in the light of those partygate fines, and yes, we'll be talking about public violence at the Oscars. And then, as always, we'll see what else we get on to. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have Gerald Lang, who's Associate Professor at Leeds, who's back with us for another episode. Hi, Gerald. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. Uh, and we've got two new guests with us this week. First, Michael Hauskeller, who's Professor at the University of Liverpool. Hi, Michael. Hello, everyone. And we've also got Rebecca Roach, who's Associate Professor at Royal Holloway University of London. Hi, Rebecca. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And if you are a fan of podcasts, and you must be because you're listening to this, then you should definitely tune in and listen to Rebecca's own podcast, The Academic Imperfectionist, is well worth listening to. Lovely to have you all three of you uh, with us. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, so let's get to our, our first item. And we're going to start by thinking about uh, Ukraine again. In a while, we're going to come to Joe Biden's speech in, in Poland. Um, but before that, we saw earlier in the week the alleged case of some Russian soldiers running over their commanding officer in a tank, seemingly disobeying orders. Um, Gerald, do you want to raise this this topic with us? Yeah, um, th this is an odd story. Um, 
I can't quite figure out whether that Russian colonel has died. Some news outlets seem to think he has died of his injuries and, and others seem to think he's recovering in a hospital somewhere in Belarus. But anyway, if these soldiers are prepared to disregard the chain of command in, in that striking way, then I think the question we can ask is this, why can't they go further and refuse to fight in what is plainly an illegal and immoral war of aggression? Now, I mean, this is complicated. That sounds like a simple question, but it's complicated. And there are two sides to the story. Uh, the more traditional way of thinking about war is that there are we separate various evaluations. We appeal to a division of labor. We can play, blame Putin for starting the war, but Russian soldiers can't be blamed for that. They're only following orders. And so they can only be reasonably blamed for violations of the war conventions, such as directly targeting civilians, and there has been some of that, and harming Ukrainian soldiers who have surrendered. But there's a second school of thought, which is alive and well in philosophical writings on this. On this school of thought, those types of evaluation are collapsed to a certain extent. So it's true that only Putin can be blamed for giving the order to invade Ukraine. But if what he did is wrong, then what the Russian soldiers are doing must also be wrong. Um, if he's acting wrongly in telling them to invade Ukraine, then they must be acting wrongly in doing what he's told them to do, namely fighting in Ukraine. And we can look at it from the other direction. Um, if what they're doing is permissible, then it's hard to see that what he did was impermissible. For he would only have been telling them to do something which is just as soon as they start doing it, turns out to be permissible. So it's complicated. Um, we, we, I mean, we might think that the Russian soldiers are largely duped, uh, that they're misinformed. We might think that there are good reasons for making soldiers think about themselves in a more morally neutral way as simply fighting for a cause they've been ordered to fight for. Maybe there are benefits in having standing, obedient armies. But I think the problem is you'd expect the moral light to get in at some point. If you regard the war for which you fight as unjust, then would it not occur to you that what you should do is to refuse to fight in it? So that, that, that's the problem as I see it. Thanks, Gerald. That was really uh, helpful and clear. Uh, Michael, why don't you come in next? Yeah, I mean, there are indeed two perspectives here. The one is that um, of the military perspective, where I think you're right that soldiers have a duty to obey orders because otherwise the whole system wouldn't work. Uh, and an order that the one who is ordered is free to reject is not an order, but a proposal or a suggestion or a request. So soldiers in that respect are, in fact, tools. They are being used to achieve certain military goals. And as such, they need to obey commands. They're not supposed to have free will. They're not supposed to reflect on right or wrong, good or evil, but to simply do their job. However, soldiers are not, in fact, tools. They're also people. And as such, they do carry responsibility for what they do. Of course, they might not be in a position to actually assess the situation and to know whether what they're doing is right or wrong. But in certain situations, they can be fairly sure. They know killing innocent civilians that come out with their hands above their heads uh, and are not armed, that killing those people is morally unacceptable. 
And if they still do it, they cannot say, well, I was just obeying orders. I mean, they can, but it's not an excuse, a moral excuse. might be a legal excuse. I don't know, but it's not a moral excuse because even if you can plausibly claim that if you hadn't obeyed orders, you would have been killed yourself or punished severely yourself, it's still a choice you're making. You're making this choice. You're saying, I'm, I find this more important, my own survival or my own um, career, than the life of those civilians. And if doing the right thing would only be required if it's convenient for you or not dangerous for you, then it wouldn't really a moral requirement. I mean, that's the whole point of morality, that you do what is right, or at least not do what is wrong, even if it's inconvenient or even dangerous. Yeah, Gerald? That seems right, Michael. I agree with you. Um, of course, they might be fighting under duress, um, and they might know that if they refused to do to carry out the orders they've been given, then they'd face, uh, well, very steep penalties, perhaps even being shot. You, you can imagine that happening. But that, that, again, that looks like an excuse rather than a justification. I mean, one problem is this. Do we want to criminalise uh, Russian soldiers? If we think that the, the, the law, that what they're doing is immoral, then presumptively there might be a case for making what they do illegal, and then they would be criminals. Now, the, the, the problems with that are pretty obvious. If they're already criminals, if they're murdering simply for following orders and, and firing at Ukrainian soldiers, then they've got nothing to lose. The only way they can escape prosecution and punishment is by, by winning the war and securing their position in a way that they can't then be brought to justice. And we want to avoid uh, those incentives to um, prolong the war. But there might also be something to be said for for maintaining this kind of um, division of labour. We might think that even if they have a reason not to fight, if they have very, very strong grounds for regarding the war as immoral, once they do start fighting, what they do can be viewable in two ways. We can still continue blaming uh, the people further up the chain of command for telling them to do what they're doing. But there's a sense in which they're not accountable for what they're doing. I think we can just about make sense of that, though it's a bit sticky. Rebecca? Yeah, I've got these sort of ideas of, I mean, we've mentioned free, Michael mentioned free will, and uh, both Michael and Gerald uh, talked about excuses versus justifications. I'm drawing a comparison in my mind with between how a Russian soldier might behave when faced with the, faced with sort of an order to behave unjustly, and what might happen in an analogous situation if somebody is in a well, what's the analogy that springs to mind is um, if someone's in an abusive relationship, a coercive relationship, when we have those situations, when these situations reach court, for example, there was a, a case a, a couple of years ago, a woman killed her husband um, in a situation of coercive control. I mean, in, in that sort of situation, we recognize that the person who's behaving violently lacks the ability to behave in a sort of well-balanced, moral, free way. And I'm wondering if there's a comparison to be made here. You know, when we talk about sort of free will, this is there's this temptation to think of that as an all or nothing thing. You know, you're either free or you're not. But it can come in degrees and 
if free will exists, it can be something that we have in some circumstances, but not in others. I mean, I think in a situation where you you are a Russian soldier, you disagree with the orders you've been given, and so you run over the person that's given you those orders. I mean, that that doesn't strike me as a a well thought out, premeditated, sort of well balanced, evaluated outcome off of a process of thought of you know I disagree with the orders I'm being given. How can I best express my dissatisfaction? It's kind of a heat of the moment thing, you know, sort of akin to stabbing one's abusive spouse. So I think you, you know, there's this you know perhaps it's controversial to to compare being in the army to being in an abusive relationship. But it's certainly a situation where, you know, I've, I've never been in the army, but but where, you know, you are encouraged to uh, see yourself as a, a working part in something larger. You know, your, your sort of your individual evaluations and decision makings aren't, aren't worth so much. And with that in mind, I just want to kind of go back to this, this idea of an excuse, because I think just colloquially, when we talk about excuses, there's something sort of pejorative about it, you know, sort of, that's just an excuse, you know, the excuses are not sort of great things to have. Whereas, you know, there's another way of looking at when we say something's an excuse, if not, if not a justification, um, we can mean something else, which is that, you know, this, this action that you've taken is not justified, but you are not as blameworthy as you might have been in, in some other circumstances where you took it. And at the same time, you know, that's that's again something that we perhaps shouldn't view in an all or nothing way. You know, you can be sort of less blameworthy without being kind of completely, completely, you know, innocent, whatever that might mean, after taking a certain course of action. And I think this is a situation where we should probably regard the the Russian soldier in question, the one who was driving a tank, as someone that kind of certainly lacked free will by comparison to, you know, a member of the public who's driving a tank or driving a car or something else and decides to run someone over and also as a behavior where that's to some extent excusable um, i think that's that's worth taking seriously you know in in the kind of serious sense that this is something this is a set of circumstances which actually reduces your blameworthiness in this situation rather than in the more kind of colloquial pejorative bah it's just an excuse sort of sense uh, michael it seems to me that there's a difference uh, going back to something gerald uh, said earlier between moral uh, culpability and criminalization. So I think we have to distinguish those two quite clearly. There's no need to um, criminalize the behavior that we find morally unacceptable because a moral decision is a decision that each individual has to take for themselves, right? Uh, And Rebecca, you're right, of course, free will, it's a graduating there's a graduation there, right? We are more or less free here. But, of course, there are soldiers who lay down their arms. There are soldiers who disobey. So it is possible. And you need to make, as an individual, as a human being, you need to make that decision yourself. And you have to live with that decision, um, whether or not you'll be punished for either doing what you're being told to do or not doing. Yeah, just just a, just a thought on what Rebecca was saying about excuses. So soldiers might be excused for following the orders. And in fact, in the heat of battle, they've been trained to do that, to keep their heads and to follow the orders they've been given. But in this case, even if it was done out of intense anger with their commanding officer, presumably it was, they certainly weren't following orders, right? Their commanding officer didn't tell them to run him over in a tank for, for um, 
turning in a poor uh, performance. So I think that shows that they are, you know, capable of thinking outside the orders they've been given, even if, of course, uh, in other aspects, they're in a very dangerous situation and, and might feel justified in, in doing whatever they can to survive. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something that we should probably mention here, which you haven't, which hasn't come up yet, which is the, the, the psychological aspect of all this. Um, it's kind of a real life example of the sort of really famous Stanford prison experiment, um, which was something that was run, I think, in the, in the 1960s. Yes. And so, so a bunch of psychologists at Stanford got some experimental subjects to sort of play play act a prison scenario and gave them, they were supposed to sort of, the, 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 some of the prison guards and some of the prisoners, and um, there were rules that they, they had to follow. And the basic upshot of it, uh, the, the, the take home for us here is that the, the ones who were told to be the prison officers were incredibly brutal, like sort of far more brutal than they would be if they uh, hadn't been told that they would that they should behave in, in certain ways. And that that's evidence for us that you know psychologically there is something about being told to follow orders which makes people behave in ways that they wouldn't necessarily behave if they were sort of evaluating themselves the choices that they should make. And it kind of goes back to the, the free will question a little bit, I think, um, in the sense that, you know, this this looks like a constraint on good decision making. If you're given orders by somebody that you take to be an authority, you end up behaving in ways that you that, that are not a reflection of your own considered deliberation. Um, and so there's this question about, you know, sort of how when we're asking a question, is it is it okay to follow orders or is it excusable to follow orders uh, to do something unjust? We shouldn't just be evaluating that as, you know, sort of, well, what if you'd done the thing that you were ordered to do as an outcome of your own free choice, like free in inverted commas here, um, and then comparing our response to that with, you know, sort of how we judge somebody that does something unjust when they're following orders. Because it looks like, you know, the evidence from psychology is that the, the very act of following orders from an authority figure is something that leads people to behave in ways that they, immoral ways that they wouldn't otherwise be behaving in. Yeah, I mean, but does the decision to follow orders, does that, that I mean, that must reflect something other than an order, <laughs> So they they got into this situation where they're going to follow orders, but not as a result of following orders. I mean, there might have been various types of peer pressure around, and it may have been precious few opportunities to do anything else. That's that's the situation of the of the average soldier. I mean, I'm, I'm just it's a suggestion that once you do this, then something that's recognisable of your moral personality, of your capacity to act freely is then sacrificed in order to be something like a cog in a military machine because i'm not i'm not sure i'm not sure how plausible that sounds of, of course of course we need to understand that that you know their habits of thought are conditioned by being part of a, a military operation of course we want them to defer we want them to be uh, presumptively obedient they're going to be focused on some things but not others. That that seems right. But and we can tell that story, I think, without worrying about the removal or erosion of free will. Mm. I think I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that, you know, because somebody's following orders, they're it doesn't matter what they do, they're blame they're blameless. 
I think the point I'm trying to make is that when we're judging the blameworthiness of somebody who does something unjust as a result of following orders, there's an important sense in which that's not comparable to judging them for doing the same thing as a result of their own free will. I mean, it could be that they're both, they're blameworthy in both cases, right? But I think, you know, the the following orders bit is not simply just a, a minor detail. It seems to be for whatever reason, sort of psychologically significant, something that itself affects people's choices. Great. Thanks. That was uh, really illuminating, uh, everyone. Before we um, move on to our next part and move away from thinking about Ukraine, um, I mentioned at at the start, Joe Biden had made this speech in Poland, uh, where it seemed he was calling on or calling for regime change in in Russia. And and Michael, you wanted to talk a little bit about this. Uh, What what were your thoughts about it? Well, we were talking, we've been talking about the soldier's culpability and moral responsibility. And of course, the one who's mostly responsible uh, is Putin. So Mm -hmm. he is the one uh, who called it all back and who initiated the whole thing. And, And Biden, in the speech that he gave in Poland, um, said something that uh, raised eyebrows and many mm-hmm. people criticized him for it, namely that Putin cannot remain in power. And what struck me about this is that he basically was saying what everyone is actually thinking. And it's something that is should should be obvious to everyone. I mean, he has been called a war criminal before by, by lots of people, and that's what he is. He is a war criminal. Um, so if we're saying, no, we cannot say that he should not remain in power, then what we're implying, it seems to me, is that it's fine for war criminals to remain in power. Um, so what is the problem with Biden saying out loud what everyone is thinking? Well, it's dangerous. Putin might be offended. The Russians might be offended. They might start a nuclear war because they now feel threatened. But does anyone seriously believe that they don't know that <laughs> he, is not, <laughs> he is not respected as a leader anymore? So what can that possibly add to the danger that we are already in? So it's, it's, it's a very strange um, dissonance between the reality of what's going on and the horror of it and the request, the, the expectation that a leader like Biden still abides by political or diplomatic etiquette and doesn't say anything that might possibly offend those war criminals, right? It's just this contrast that I find mm. remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rebecca? Yeah, I think this is a really fun illustration of something that um, linguists talk about, which is that even if everybody knows a certain thing, there's a certain change that comes from somebody actually saying it. This is something that Stephen Pinker has has written about with the example of the the Emperor's New Clothes story, you know, that sort of tale where the Emperor has a new outfit and is actually naked. Um, everyone's looking at him and everybody knows that he's naked, but nobody's mentioning it. And then a little child in the audience says, the emperor's got no clothes on. And then there's this change and everyone, it, it just becomes something that everybody could talk about. And so this this discussion about, you know, what is what is the basis for that change? You know, sort of what what happens there? Because, you know, sort of everybody knew it anyway, but then it suddenly becomes kind of out in the open. 
And, you know, you can argue about what that that change consists in, you know, sort of what exactly is going on there. But it, but it does seem clear that it is a change. And it's something that I think is in sort of more everyday scenarios. You know, there's plenty of things that we, plenty of situations where um, we all know that everyone around us knows something, but nobody's going to say it. You know, it might be that somebody's got really bad BO or, or something like that. But you would you would change something about the situation by saying it. And I think um, this case is an interesting illustration of that. You know, sort of everybody knows that Putin is a, a war criminal, etc. But actually saying it is significant. Um, and then it becomes something that we're not ignoring and we can talk to each other about. I mean, that that might be part of it, that previously it's something that we we all knew and we knew that each other knew, but we didn't know that each other knows that we know that that sort of um that sort of thing. So I was just going to say it has been said before that he is a war criminal. It's not it's different from the Emperor's New Clothes situation, where something is just not perceived as the reality that is actually there. We all knew it and we've said it and it's being discussed. So why can he not say it in that situation? So it's about never calling someone out never breaking all bridges. There's fear there, of course, but I have the suspicion that it's also about possible future opportunities, right? So if we say he cannot remain in power and then he does remain in power, then there's a contradiction there. If we never say he cannot remain in power, then he can remain in power and we can start dealing with Putin and his likes again. So it's a keeping a back door open not only for negotiations that perhaps um, re-establish peace, but also for us to be able to to use this again and to forget about what has happened. And perhaps it's important that we don't forget and keep it and put it in the open that this man is a mass murderer and we should be aware of it and he cannot remain in power. Yeah, I mean, just a, f- a few thoughts from me, then I'll, I'll bring in Gerald. Uh, I think it's a really interesting topic, Michael. Thanks for raising it. And I agree with Rebecca. Obviously, something's changed. I agree with both of you. I think something has changed because it's the President of the United States saying it in a big speech when a war's going on. Um, I mean, that, I, I think that, that that's new, but you're right, Michael. I mean, of course, many people have said this about Putin before. And of course, when I saw this news story, like many other people, I held my breath because it goes against the sort of normal well, the diplomatic norms of keeping things nice and steady. You know, would Putin then escalate the the, the war on the ground rather than just a, a war of words? But actually, that, that hasn't happened. And I think actually it could be quite useful because, you know, what happened in the next 24 hours, you know, various people in the American administration, including Biden himself, said, no, I didn't mean that. But of course, we know that he did mean it. Um, and actually, it puts a marker in the ground in the way that you're you're outlining, uh, Michael. And itself becomes just something that other people will remember, um, perhaps people in in Russia as well. So I think actually, I mean, uh, I mean, everyone was criticising Biden and saying, "Oh, he's lost the plot and all these things." I mean, he may not have done. He may he may actually have known what he was doing. Um, but Gerald, what do you think? Yeah, that I mean, that does seem possible. I mean, so the problem is a good one. I mean, um, so everyone's thinking it. Why not say it? Um, it's pretty pretty clear that Biden was voicing, giving voice to a hope rather than announcing a plan. Um, but even so, I think, I mean, generally speaking, politicians shouldn't always 
say what they think. I think one particular danger here is that those words are apt to be extracted by the Kremlin propaganda machine. It will nurse that narrative they have about being surrounded by intensely threatening neighbours, uh, you know, a threat that can only be dealt with by marching into those countries. Um, so there's that. And I think more generally, political leaders, I mean, political international political relationships are partly personal relationships because the political leaders need to interact with each other in uh, certain ways, but they're not normal everyday relationships. So, of course, it's going to be insincerity and pretense because political leaders have to deal with the other political leaders they find. Those ingredients in everyday relationships would be fatal, but we just have to endure them for these types of relationships. And, and that, that, that's why we shouldn't expect politicians to, to say what they think. In a way, that's, that fuels a generalized distrust towards the political class. Um, it's generally suspected that they, uh, that, you know, that, that they're not saying what they think and that's held against them. They speak only to create an effect. Um, and that might be problematic uh, in some instances, but, but not when it comes to these kind of issues, it seems to me. That there's a reason why diplomatic language is heavily stylized and why it's heavily picked over. Yeah. Michael? Well, I'm sure there's a reason for that, but uh, we're not in normal times here. It's not a normal situation where you try to negotiate with with other states, but we have a war situation and we have a situation where it's already clear that this is morally absolutely unacceptable. As I said before, it's a war criminal um, that everyone acknowledges um, he is. Um, so, in that situation, what's the point of not saying it? There's a certain, I mean, you pointed out, Simon, it's, it's like um, we don't want to give the Russians an excuse uh, and um, to feed into that narrative of actually being the victims and so on. But they don't need an excuse. If nobody says anything, they just make it up. Um, so th there's no there's no justification needed for doing any of this. Uh, Rebecca? Yeah, I just, uh, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, sort of how significant is it that it was Biden that said this rather than somebody else, you know, it's the president of the United States and so on. And I'm just wondering whether whether you guys think it would be different if another leader had said the same thing. Because Biden does have this, there's this feel about him that he's sort of like the almost like the kind of senile relative at the dinner table, right? Who will just kind of speak his mind. And, um, you know, he's he's sort of misspoken a few times in the past and there's been sort of speculation on his mental state. And um, so, so I suppose one thought is that might it have been the sort of similar misjudgment, which can be sort of written off as sort of, oh gosh, Biden doesn't know what he's saying again. Or it could even be, I don't know, sort of, almost like a double bluff that he's kind of smarter than lots of people give him credit for. And he's he's realized he might be able to get away with saying things that other, you know, other world leaders wouldn't. And perhaps that that gives him a little bit of leeway here. Gerald, I've got some thoughts about that as well, but I'll let you come in first. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to add the thought, which complements what Rebecca said, that, I mean, Biden's political opponents are clearly keen to keep this story as a ball in the air for as long as they can, because it, you know, it fuels their narrative that, Biden's a, Biden's a zombie president who's well past his 
sell by date. So, I mean, that that's one of the ingredients in this story, I think. But it's not the only one. He is the president of the United States. And that makes what he says more interesting than, say, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg. Uh, I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting point, uh, Rebecca. And I, in fact, I, I don't I don't know Biden and I hear all this speculation and, and who knows. So, I mean, it could be, you know, as people are saying, or it could be the double bluff, as, as you express. I, I genuinely don't know. But I think I think it is significant. Like I agree with Gerald. It's it's very significant. It's the president of the United States and not just the president of Luxembourg. I think, you know, if, Mac- if Macron had said it, then, of course, that would have been newsworthy. But I think just because it's the president of the US and we're all talking about, are we entering a new period of a, of a new Cold War or anything? I think it's just really significant that whoever is in the office and whatever is his state of mind, I think it's really interesting that it's the, it's the president of the US. I think that makes it an interesting, an interesting moment. Um, so whatever else is the intention, the fact that it's the speech act, going back to the, the, the initial thought, the fact that it's a speech act and it's someone in, in the room saying it, right? Whether it's been said before, but the fact that it's the president of the US, I think is just is just a significant moment. Listen, thanks all three of you. That was a really interesting um, set of discussions. Let's just pause things there and we'll see you all in the next part where we'll be cracking open the Prosecco and having a party. And welcome back. As I've mentioned, this week the Metropolitan Police announced it was about to issue its first fines following the Partygate affair where COVID rules were broken. I presume I now don't have to say allegedly broken uh, at number 10 Downing Street and elsewhere. In earlier times, this breach and also what's been said in Parliament may have been considered a resigning issue already. Um, Rebecca, do you want to comment on this first for us? Yeah, um, I sort of wonder whether we have bad politician behaviour fatigue. Um, The fact that, as you say, you know, sort of a decade or so ago, this would be a resignation situation. But we've had we've had this sort of situation time and time again, you know, sort of where there has been a scandal and, you know, sort of rule breaking by people who should be setting an example. And and they've just carried on. And there's been this sort of sense of, well, what are you going to do about it? To the extent that, you know, sort of wondering what's going on in us that makes them able to do that, whether there's been this sort of just universal lowering of standards and this accept, like weary acceptance that this is what we need to expect from the people who are supposed to be leading us. And it put me in mind of the um, the line from Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky where Raskolnikov says something like, man the beast gets used to everything. You know, we were just acclimatized to whatever whatever horrible thing is throwing it thrown at us and bad behavior becomes normalized which is really worrying right because then we just accept lower and lower standards when we actually could be building a better society yeah thanks rebecca that's a that's a great but downbeat start to this this segment (laughs) um gerald do you want to go first then michael yeah i agree with rebecca i mean in the sense that they're probably some fatigue does set in and you just adjust to whatever the environment is. And if the politicians are increasingly ropey, the standards they need to flout in order to be considered sackable um, probably also um, vary. But I think there are other things to say about this. I mean, one thing might be that in some ways there's been an improvement in the range of bad behaviour that gets you sacked or that calls for resignation. Um, over the years. So, for example, adultery, there's no denial. I don't deny that uh, being adulterous is wrongful behavior, but it's not 
um, it's not obviously relevant to one's political career. So I think I think the real question is what kind of offences matter to the question of whether a politician should resign or if she's not the prime minister should be sacked, and and that I think is is a more subtle uh, question. And and I suppose it, I suppose things that bear on a politicians' trustworthiness are important but but then if that were the case then adultery might matter to whether the politician is trustworthy obviously they're not trustworthy in their private lives with their nearest and dearest so why should we trust them to to fill the political office they're in but that to me looks like bad reasoning because it it has the um has the upshot that they should be pretty much flawless in their private lives as well as their public lives in order to be considered to be well in order to be considered worthy of serving in that role and that that looks like a wrong turn to me thanks michael i I think you're right that we have the tendency to adjust our expectations to reality so certain things do get normalized but i think that there's also something else going on here a few years ago, that was after the Brexit decision was taken, um, but before a final agreement uh, had been put in place, I was talking to a neighbor of mine, a very charming old gentleman, um, and for some reason we started talking about Brexit. And in that context, um, it emerged that he was very much in favor of Brexit. But what struck me and what I think I will never forget is what he said then, namely that we need a ruthless leader. We need a ruthless leader. I'm not sure whether he um, thought Johnson was that ruthless leader, but the very idea that what we need in a leader is mostly not honesty or trustworthiness or whatever. We need ruthlessness. And it seems to me that for many people, Shameless lying, and that is what Trump did to excess and what Johnson is also very good at. Shameless lying is seen as a sign of strength uh, because truth itself has to yield to the will of the ruthless leader here. Not even truth can stand in the way of, as Johnson is fond of saying, getting the job done. Right? And if the lie is repeated often enough, as we have learned, then people believe it. People don't really have much interest in truth. What they want, what we want, is a story that confirms what we want to believe, something perhaps that helps us to orientate ourselves, something we can live by. And what many people want to live by might not be what we would prefer that people want to live by. So there's a problem with democracy here. It is not always the case that the majority of people want what is best for everyone. And that's why they prefer a ruthless leader who just gets the job done and doesn't care what he needs to do or she needs to do in order to get it done. We don't want them to care too much about truth or etiquette or whatever. Just get the job done. Yeah, Rebecca. I agree with that, and and what an alarming comment from your neighbour. But um, I think there's there's something else going on. It's that, it, that it's not just truth here. It's um, you know, in the case of the Partygate, this is 
you know, regardless of sort of whether it was true or not that we ought to be not having parties, there, there's something kind of self-defeating about a government that um, sets a rule and then immediately breaks it themselves. I mean, that seems like a way off undermining their own authority and um, perhaps their own, you know, so you, you, you talk, Michael, about sort of, um, you know, perhaps some people want a government that will just get the job done. I mean, that seems like a good way not to get the job done. If you're setting rules, which you're then demonstrating that you don't think are important, or that seems to be the message, you know, I suppose you could make a case for, well, I think it's as long as everybody else does it, it's okay for us not to do it. Um, but, you know, we, we certainly don't want, I mean, I know not everybody holds my political views, but but I think I'm, try, I'm trying to generalise here, sort of uncontroversially, I hope, but we don't like following rules that we think are pointless and senseless, right? And, and setting rules about um, restricting people's freedom to interact with each other while also breaking them is a good way of demonstrating that you don't think they're important. So I think, you know, I mean, perhaps this is partly about hypocrisy, but I also think it's about um, expressing one view about what's important with words and a different view with actions in a situation where, you know, what you're trying to express has significant public consequences. Yeah, just just a comment from me and then I'll bring uh, uh, Gerald in. So I think in a way you're all right. I mean, I think that that's... Um, you know, Michael's neighbour. Uh, I mean, I think there are some people like that. And it's, it's clear there are because there's people who vote for um, not just Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, but I mean, leaders in, in other countries as well. But I mean, it's just so shameless. I mean, I think that there's there's issues here of truth and hypocrisy, as you said, Rebecca, and also just contempt for, for you know, Parliament. I mean, literally contempt for Parliament, breaking the rules about what was said in Parliament and, and contempt for the British public. It's just all all loads of bad um and well i just i just throw my hands up in in horror at it all perhaps a practical issue then to consider uh, around if boris johnson comes under pressure to resign whether this is the right time given what's going on you know in ukraine but that's uh, that's that's another matter uh, gerald why don't you come in first yeah just a couple of thoughts i mean the first is about the kind of demands we make on politicians and i think i think michael and maybe even michael's neighbor is right that we we do expect politicians if necessary to cut corners to be dishonest to do what it takes to get their hands dirty uh, we're happy for them to do that um, in the shadows as it were so that our lives uh, can be as comfortable as possible on the other hand we expect a large degree of transparency in politicians and we say that we're dissatisfied whenever we come across evidence that they've been um, non-transparent. Perhaps again this goes back to the trustworthiness issue. We don't really know what they do. Um, the only signals we get from their fittingness to do the things they're doing for us is that they are they have this you know general dependable character trait, that they're trustworthy and so when we get evidence that they're untrustworthy, that counts against their fittingness to do the job that they've been appointed to do. I mean, on, on Partygate itself, then yes, it's absolutely right that uh, for Rebecca to say that. I mean, the problem seems to be not just that they flouted the rules, but that they flouted the rules that they enacted for all of us. And that that seems to lead to certain concerns about their authority to do so. Why does it do that? Well, then I think it gets interesting. It, uh, perhaps one thing we might want to say is, well, it makes them hypocrites. They're, they're, they're doing one thing 
what they're saying one thing, but then they're not they're not doing what they say. Um, they're, they're not complying to the rules that they enacted for everyone else. Well, for some people, I think hypocrisy is a bottom line. It's just self-evident that hypocrisy is bad. Now, I, I don't deny that hypocrisy is bad, but I, I do think it's puzzling why it's bad. And it might be partly because of the uh, other bits of wrongdoing which are associated with it, misleading the house, lying. And it might be, uh, as Rebecca suggested, it suggests a kind of cynicism towards the rules. They don't really believe in these rules, and that changes their relationship to us. We're just the dupes uh, who have been spun a lie about the need to behave in this way. But as we can see, the people telling us to do that don't actually believe it, or they don't apply those standards to themselves, which means that they have contempt for us in a way that's that's subtly different. There might be more to it than just hypocrisy, not doing what one says. Um, It's been said that the rule maker cannot be the rule breaker. And that somehow reminds me of Kant, Kant's moral philosophy, where the law needs to be respected as a law. Um, And the reason why people, some people, get outraged over this breach of trust or breach of the rules is not so much the hypocrisy, it is the realization that that somehow undermines the law itself, the rule itself. And, of course, it's, as it's also been said, it makes a sacrifice of those who did abide by the rules. Um, it makes them look like fools, right? But that's because the rule, the authority of the rule, is being completely destroyed by the fact that those who made the rules didn't abide by them. I mean, it's not... I, I, I can see that, and, and part of me wants to believe it, but it's just not obvious to me why the authority... Perhaps it's because I don't quite know what authority amounts to. But it's not obvious to me why the authority of the law requires that those who enacted the law conform to the law. That's not obvious to me. I mean, it's not obvious that the authority of the law would be undermined by other people's non-compliance. We'd still have the, the law. It's just that people weren't complying with it. I mean, if everyone failed to comply with it, um, then the, 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 there might be some other threat to the authority of the law. Um, but... Why do the law givers in particular have to comply to the law in order for the law to maintain its authority? That's that's not obvious to me. Maybe I'm just being slow, but it's not obvious to me. His suggestion for me, and then I can see Rebecca wants to come in. Is it, is it because, um, so you're just mentioning, I think, perhaps the effects of, of non-compliance. Is it the thought that the people who are, who are making the law I mean, if they've made the law, then they must think it's a good idea to have such a law in the first place or a rule, um, in which case then if they go ahead and break it, then that probably undermines the thought that they they think it's a good idea, in which case, therefore, why should I think it's a good idea? So then then we might be questioning you know, their, their motivations as to why they made the law in the first place and what they really think about it. Yeah, uh, Rebecca? Yeah, um, the same point, really. I think, you know, you don't get it, it's not just that the, the lawmakers just implement laws without saying anything about it. They sort of implement them in a democracy, at least. They implement them alongside a, a, an explanation of why they're doing that, you know, why this why this is a good idea. Um, and so immediately breaking them just sort of completely undermines that. What about the the point I um I raised a, a little while ago 
because um, there's, there's a practical issue here where there's always things going on, but there's something very big going on at the moment, Ukraine, which we've talked about uh, for, for quite a few episodes in this podcast. And, and obviously, it's, it's been major news around the world. Um, let's imagine, you know, let's imagine Johnson is issued with a fine at some point. Is this the right time, do you think, to for people to say, well, we need to change the leader, he needs to step down? Or do you think circumstances have, have changed? I've seen, seen that argument made. Uh, what do you what do you think about that, Gerald? Look, it might be that Johnson's just got lucky here um, because because the news landscape has changed and people are, are just less het up about this than they were a couple of months ago. But I mean, I think I agree with you, Simon, that if it was com- if it was considered to be important enough for Johnson to resign a couple of months ago, when um, we're all waiting with bated breath for the Sue Gray report that, that never seemed to come along, then he should, in theory, uh, resign for it now. And yes, he's involved in, uh, well, he, he's involved in commentary. He's involved with the, the management of the Ukrainian crisis, but other people can step into his shoes. Um, government ministers do that the whole time. They're, they're briefed and they get up to speed and then they know what to do. And uh, I mean, the, 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 the point is, if Johnson's lost credibility such that, such that he has to resign, then that's what he should do. And he should be replaced by someone who will just take up his briefs and speak to them. Yeah, I, I think I've seen a, a, a bit of this around recently, you know, sort of especially people saying, you know, I voted Conservative at the last election, but I'm really disheartened. And I'm sort of wondering what, why now? <laughs> because it, it seems have been um, like when has Johnson ever been competent? It's almost like his he <laughs> creates this public image of incompetence. You know, I, I try to kind of stickle sort of all the reasons I don't like the Conservatives because you know, sort of like people be listening who don't share my views. But you know, even if you are a Tory, his image is this kind of bumbling bosh boy who just fumbles through everything in a lovable way if you like him but otherwise it's kind of glaringly incompetent way that just seems to be part of what's going on it it's i mean i find it baffling that anybody was ever supportive of him or or felt like they were in good hands um so yeah when i see these sort of this view expressed now sort of like well maybe now's the time to go i'm sort of genuinely puzzled at why what he's done up until now could have been acceptable Sure, I mean, I I mean, I agree <laughs> completely. Uh, I'm not going to sit on the fence. Um, I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I agree completely. But but um, I suppose there's, you know, he's crossed the line in in this one. I mean, particularly if he if he himself is being fined by the police, which um, is I think a very significant event, and if he's um, routinely misled Parliament uh, about this issue and has refused to retract and apologise, even though he's been on numerous occasions and it's explicitly been pointed out to him that he might be misleading the House and has misled the House and perhaps you should retract and perhaps even apologise and he's refused to do it. So I mean, I just think it's just blatant um, in a way that previously it wasn't, uh, though, I mean, pretty obvious as well, if I can draw that distinction, but it's probably not a very helpful distinction. Uh, Michael. Yeah, but Rebecca's right. He has never apologized for anything. So it's not something new with his style and, and what he does hasn't really changed his attitude. But of course, um, just because 
his leaving his post is overdue doesn't mean now is not the right time, right? Uh, any time would have been the right time. So we can just as well ask, well, if we should have done it earlier, but let's do it now, at least, right? rather than wait any longer with it. Yeah, it's strange about Johnson. I mean, the the, 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 the bumbling incompetence, uh, the failing upwards, the the lies and evasions, I think it it must be part of his appeal. There must be something about Johnson. Uh, the fact he's somehow protected that that makes him a charismatic figure for for some of the people who vote for him. Uh, I mean, and then the plague came along, and and we realised he wasn't you know he wasn't really the right man for that job. That would have stretched just about anyone. I think the fact he seems to have an innumerable number of lives is actually part of his appeal. It, it explains some sort of weird charisma he commands over many voters in Britain. Well, many voters in England. I completely agree with that. That's what I meant earlier with the ruthless leader and the appeal of the ruthless leader. It's a lying, it's a constant denying that never apologizing that is actually appealing. For many, and that is a problem. I suppose that returns us to to Rebecca's opening, and uh, it's so depressing in a way. I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, I, I see it all the time, talking to, to to various people, not just here, but back where my my parents live. But it's just it's just so depressing. We we should be better than this. There we are. So I just want to say, coming back to Biden, right? For me, Biden is a contrast to this. And which became very obvious in his speech. I mean, we not not always think carefully about what he says because sometimes he speaks from the heart. But he seems to be a decent guy, and he isn't prone to lying. And that is why one of the reasons why he doesn't have the popular appeal that Trump has or Boris Johnson has. It's, it's it's like we live in a topsy-turvy world where decency is not an asset. It's the opposite of it for a politician. Yeah, strange times. Right, listen, um, everyone, let's leave that there and um, we'll see you all in the next part when I hope we'll all be decent and no one will slap anyone else. <laughs> And welcome back. At the Oscars this week, Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. In turn, Pinkett Smith's husband, Will Smith, obviously angered, leapt on stage and slapped Chris Rock. I suspect you may have heard about it and seen some of the footage. This raises a a host of issues. Michael, do you want to start us off exploring them? Well, when I watched the footage, um, of course, I was puzzled like everyone else. But I was also a little bit impressed by uh, Smith's action. The way he did it was very cool, very disciplined and controlled in a way. And uh, I mean, in the aftermath of that, everyone is talking about, and there's near universal condemnation of it. It's physical violence. Physical violence cannot be tolerated in any form whatsoever. Uh, So it's a case of someone committing a grievous act of physical harm on someone else. Ben Bremble in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Ben Bremble is a philosopher. He actually used to be 
um, a colleague of mine at Liverpool a while ago, he, he says in that article, this was a horrendous moral transgression. And just imagine, he says, how much violence Smith's actions will span. And he demands that Smith makes amends and shows true remorse, showing that he's truly sorry by giving back his award. So it's a horrendous moral transgression. And I'm wondering, is it really such a horrendous moral transgression? Because it doesn't seem to be the case that he put Chris Rock in any danger. As I said before, it was in a way very clinical and not out of control at all. So what counts as physical violence? Of course, we can say this is physical violence, just as even a touch can be um, defined or construed as physical violence or push or shove. But there's still a huge difference, which is kind, kind of denied when we just talk about physical violence and physical violence being bad in all its forms. The difference between a slap or the kind of slap that Will Smith um, did on uh, Chris Rock and a beating or rape, torture, murder, which are all forms of physical violence. Are they all the same and equally unacceptable? What makes physical violence in all its forms bad? And you can, can easily see that in a different kind of moral culture, in a culture of honor, what Smith did would not only have been morally permissible, but actually morally required, defending your wife against insults. And make no mistake, that was a very mean and cruel thing to say, um, making a joke about someone suffering from uh, alopecia, from hair loss, which I'm sure is very difficult for that woman, a source of severe pain, and then somebody jokes about it. Bramble, in, in the article, says, well, because she's rich in a celebrity, she is, as he puts it, fair game for roasting. And there's a certain resentment there. All those people are rich and have it all. They should should be able to take this kind of thing. But should they really? Uh, there's also, it seems to me, perhaps a certain element of racism in this. The black man should behave here. And also sexism. The black woman should take being the butt of a bad joke and good humor. Both should know their place. But imagine you lost your child in an accident and somebody makes a joke about this on stage in front of a large audience. Should you just keep smiling and clapping, just take the joke? Would a slap in the face be justified then? Okay, great. Thanks, Michael. Uh, that's a really helpful introduction. And uh, I can see, I mean, loads of philosophers have been talking about this in all sorts of places. And, and hello, Ben Bramble, if you're listening. Uh, I hope you're doing well. Um, Gerald, uh, Rebecca, you both want to come in on, on this. And I'll, I'll say a few things as well. Yeah. Yeah, so there are different things to say about this. I mean, I think one thing is, why is this a big news story compared to all the other things that are going on? I think there might be two reasons. First of all, it's it's reassuringly small, uh, and, and that's the truth. We can pretend it's bigger than it is, but it's reassuringly small. It's not going to change our lives like uh, plague does uh, or war does. It's not going to change the contours of the world. And yet it's it's within range of... <clears throat> 
important talking points, physical violence, relationships between men and women, racial issues, talking about disability, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's interesting, but reassuringly minor. That's one thing to say. I mean, about, I mean, about what Smith did, I think what he did was wrong, but he has apologised for it. And, and in this article that Michael was talking about by Ben uh, Bramble, uh, ben, ben argues that the test of sincerity in his apology is that he should give back the Oscar, or at least offer to give back the Oscar. Uh, I, mean, I, I disagree with that. Why, why isn't an apology enough? Why are we so sceptical about whether an apology is sincere? Even if he gave the Oscar back, someone who is determined to suspect him of insincerity could say, well, he's only given the Oscar back. Uh, to disguise the insincerity of his uh, apology. I, I think that's fruitless. It won't get us anywhere. He has apologised. We should move on. I mean, yes, the, the Academy has to come to some sort of verdict uh, about how they will treat this misdemeanour. But I, uh, well, what, what do I know? But I, I think they're probably unlikely uh, to annul the Oscar. I mean, the Oscar was given to him, for, after all, for... Um, his acting performance in King Richard, not, not not for being a good citizen. So, yeah. Yeah, there's lots going on here, I think. I think one issue here is the this sort of binary, either you condemn physical violence in all of its forms or you don't, um, which Michael touched on a little bit. And I think, you know, that very binary view means that there's nowhere to go, really, if we want to make comparisons between different sorts of physical violence you know if we kind of if if will smith hands back his oscar and is an outcast and we unreservedly condemn what he's done then where do we go when people do a sort of greater acts of violence and which cause a lot more harm and i think that's that's part of the the, the culture we live in i guess where we sort of have this kind of very clickbaity news environment where you, you kind of have to that there's 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 no room for nuance another issue so, so this is something that the gender aspect bothers me with this it, it plays a little bit too much into you know women need their husbands to defend them i think the the, the comments were horrible i think you know everyone seems to agree that i i think what i've seen is that there's a little bit too much sympathy with the idea that, well, of course, Will Smith was going to react like that to some, you know, he was going to defend the honour of his wife. And I think that's really problematic. You know, sort of, we're, we're better than that, I I hope. <laughs> but, you know, we, we're sort of, um, we women are not princesses that need their princes to defend them. But I want to temper that with saying some, something else that I did read, which was that... Um, and this plays into the sort of the, the the plea for nuance a little bit, I think, that Will Smith has spoken before about growing up in an environment of domestic violence and has, has spoken about his guilt, which, you know, I think guilt there should be inverted commas because he has no reason for guilt, uh, but he, his sense of guilt at not having defended his mother from abuse. And I think, you know, sort of viewed against that background, of, of course, it was going to be upsetting for him to witness what he did i think you know that but this is a situation in which there's there's a lot going on there's sort of 
um, there's the comments themselves. There is sort of what was going on inside Will Smith. There's the sort of racism aspect. There's the gender aspect. And then you've got the fact that it happened at the Oscars, which is that it sort of lends this kind of sensationalist sheen to it, where it's sort of all about the screenshots and the, you know, the kind of the action sort of here's the here's the action shot of the slap and the just the whole scandal of it where there's no room for nuance it, it's it's the sort of story that you learn what you need to know from reading a headline right or, or just seeing the photo you can get a taste of the scandal without sort of going going into it in any further detail that the fact that this is a news story i think sort of illustrates lots of different things you know that the, the smallness of it the you know that i mean it, i guess even the fact that we are, you know, we've kind of talking about three topics on this podcast, and one of them is this slap, and another one is a, a Russian soldier driving over somebody else with a tank, which are kind of, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum of how much harm you can cause another person with, with your own with your own hands. You know, on the news radar, they're registering pretty similar. Um, are they of equal importance? Well, no, but they sort of the fact that they are receiving similar amounts of airtime, I guess, tells us something about our relationship with the news, right? Yeah, and just uh, to come in on that, so in previous episodes we've talked about the news cycle and things mattering in and of themselves, and things mattering in relation to, to other things. In fact, that's probably the the most important thing I think of about about this in that it's I mean I think Gerald used that, that a very nice phrase it's reassuringly small and that's probably why people have latched onto it I mean it raises some interesting issues that that we've that you've all highlighted but it's reassuringly small in in this regard I mean that's why I, I deliberately did the introduction I did right at the start of the show you know one man slapped another man at an award ceremony I mean it, it's as it's as newsworthy as that I mean of course it's big it looms large in the life of the people involved but not not really for us but it but it still is interesting to to discuss and as I think I think you're right actually Rebecca there's a there's a lot of nuance here lots of things going on and in fact actually if we lose the nuance then there's nowhere to go it's either perfectly great and someone's a hero and they did wonderfully well or someone's the complete villain of the piece and and you can see how this could play out, right? So the Academy will kind of, you know, expel Will Smith or suspend him for five years or something draconian. And then after a period of time, he'll go on Oprah or whatever else and and he'll apologize profusely and there'll be a kind of coming back into the community. And he'll have to, there'll have to be all of that happening because we've started at quite an extreme place without the nuance i mean I, I don't think he should have slapped chris rock but it was a it wasn't a, a very good joke it was in bad taste i mean the more dignified thing would have been perhaps to say something in an acceptance speech and or said something behind the scenes afterwards and issue a statement i mean but but that it happened is i think is interesting and i think Mike, michael raised something interesting as well about uh something which is kind of not not part of my world and so i i i, I go into this with some trepidation but the, the in some cultures with with honor that looms large and all of these things as well there, there, there's loads of things going on but i think this is a case which needs to be treated with with nuance even though it's reassuringly small that that was my my takeaway from it michael you want to come back in um Perhaps one of the reasons why this has become such a big story is that it was so entirely unexpected and not sure. scripted. Yeah. Oscar events is a very scripted, a very staged event. Uh, yeah. It's about celebrating Hollywood um, and entertainment. Right? Um, and that was somehow 
reality breaking into this carefully scripted scenario. And that is not tolerated. So it might not be entirely about physical violence. It's about, again, a breach of etiquette, perhaps not entirely dissimilar to Biden's talking about what is really going on and what he really thinks here. So reality is not being tolerated. Those actors actually having not only positive feelings and bathing in the glory of their accomplishments, but there's resentment, there's jealousy, there's anger, all kinds of things. And that suddenly came out in that brief moment. And that might be one of the reasons why everyone is talking about it. But I wanted to pick up on something you just said, Simon, namely that it would have been much more dignified um, if Smith, instead of slapping Rock, said something in the uh, in the acceptance speech. And yeah, it would have been more dignified, but exactly that is the expectation, right? We want them to be dignified, right? We don't want them to react like perhaps any normal human being would react in that situation, not necessarily slapping people, but becoming angry and then showing, showing that anger in some, some way. Um, and part of that etiquette that we are so keen on preserving is that, uh, and that that's what I find strange and um, worrying, is that even the meanest, most hurtful jokes are protected as free speech. And we should we should laugh, laugh them off. But it's there's not just physical violence. Words can hurt too. And we use them abundantly today to hurt people. And we're supposed to accept this. But the whole, the whole culture where this is the norm is something to worry about, isn't it? Sure. Absolutely. On that, I definitely agree. Uh, and in fact, in an earlier episode, we were talking about Jimmy Carr's recent Holocaust joke around around that, which of course is, I think, is you know more extreme, but but definitely very, very, very not just offensive, but I think um, harmful. Uh, Gerald, yeah, I was going to make a point that Michael made. That I mean, w- one of the mildly shocking things about this story was that it, it was off script. This is a scripted, manicured occasion. There are large elements of comedy roasting, and it would probably be intolerable to see so you know uh very rich successful beautiful people gathering together to celebrate their success unless there was this comedy roasting element and so i mean that works until it doesn't work and it, it didn't work for smith and i'm i'm humanly sympathetic to him but i don't think that makes chris rock a mon- uh, i don't think it, it makes him a monster but i mean a couple of other things i think i mean this is just one of a litany of cases in which celebrities do something and then what they do is solemnly analysed for days or weeks on end. And I think it just confirms what a celebrity-saturated culture we now inhabit. I mean, back in the day, um, we knew where the celebrity gossip was. It was in OK and Hello magazines, right? And we could flip through them, have fun with it, or not. Um, but, but, but now... Uh, Everything that someone like Kanye West does is, you know, again, solemnly analysed for days and weeks on end, as though the secrets to life are somehow contained in, in what we have to say about these very rich people living within a few miles of each other in Los Angeles. And uh, it seems to me that tendency should 
should be disparaged. Um, we have only so much to learn uh, from celebrities. It's interesting that we live in a celebrity culture. That's worth talking about. But I'm, I'm not particularly interested in the antics of these multimillionaire entertainers. And I don't think I'm making any mistakes. Yeah, I think the appeal of sort of what celebrities are doing is um, you, you kind of can't argue with that because people just are interested, right? It's not newsworthy if some random person slaps another random person in the street. The, the very fact that it's a celebrity makes it newsworthy. And I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, you talked, Gerald, about the, 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 the manicured nature of this whole performance, the Oscars ceremony. We like to see the mask slipping, right? It's a little bit like Partygate in a way, you know, where there's this sort of fascination with look at these people who are supposed to be almost non-human doing naughty stuff. I mean, with Partygate, you have these sort of additional complication of the fact that they're telling the rest of us what to do. But just this, well, I, I remember one time I was having my haircut and I was reading OK magazine and it was an article about the Beckons who kind of were more in the news in those days. But it seemed that at the end of every single paragraph, there was a sentence of, of approximately the form, you see, the Beckons are just like the rest of us. And I thought, like, is that is that what's going on here? That there's this sort of, this kind of desperation to think, I, I am like them, honestly, aren't I? Aren't I? <laughs> so, so there's this kind of appeal of seeing these sort of very manicured people look human. I guess part, partly schadenfreude, but partly, uh, I mean, maybe it's just connection. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the kind of connection actually between what, what Smith did going off scripts and, and uh, the Biden gaffe. In, in some ways, we like gaffe-ridden politicians because they, they seem like, you know, chinks of real human personality coming through. Uh, there's a manicured, scripted surface, and then there are signs of a real person sometimes saying what they think. And in, in the Oscar case, Smith... Again, though he behaved badly, was at least expressing the real Will Smith uh, insofar as we can decipher what the real Will Smith is. And, you know, there's a sense in which we understand that. We, we might not approve of what he did, but we don't disapprove of the fact that he went off script. Yeah, I mean, it, so it reminds me that this sort of going off script of... So, so one of my philosophical interests is, is swearing. Um, and there was this study of quite a while ago now, quite a few years ago now, about politicians swearing. And, you know, sort of obviously if some if some celebrity or public figure swears in a context where they shouldn't do, it makes it makes the news. I mean, people used to love uh, hearing about what Prince Philip had said to photographers and so on. But um, there was this, uh, th- this study that seemed to show that when politicians swear, they're, they're more trusted. You know, that they're, they're kind of just like us. That there's some honesty about it, that, that people like to see it. And as I say, this, this, this study was quite a while ago. I mean, it was pre-Trump and pre this kind of recent period of politicians behaving really badly. And I've sort of occasionally wished that somebody would redo it because I wonder if Trump has kind of ruined, <laughs> ruined that. But I think, yeah, this, there is this sort of humanity about rule breaking, people slipping up you know, people sort of making gaffes and so on, because we, we all do that. And we, um, we like, we sort of celebrate these, these people who we like to think have perfect lives. And then we kind of like to see when they're, 
when they're not so perfect, whether that's through slapping somebody else or breaking laws that they've set or, and I know, I guess sort of more, some of the more prurient stories about, you know, sort of infidelity and just sort of enjoying, enjoying the, the misery of some of these people we like to think have perfect lives. Yeah, I, 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 there's something gruesome about all that. I think just this kind of um, predatory interest in other people's private lives. But but I think a more benign and maybe optimistic way of looking at it is that we do like to see people's humanity, that there's something unappealing about this manicured. I, I, I like that expression that, that Gerald used, this kind of um, this very, very carefully managed image that we're presented with and, and that there's something kind of reassuring about realising that we are all humans together. Uh, thanks all three of you. Perhaps we should we should leave it there. I mean, one thing going through my head as we got onto just celebrity culture is uh, I'm glad actually people focus on celebrities rather than the perfect lives of philosophers and see all of our, <laughs> our, our manicured uh, lives. Uh, actually, I am presenting at a couple of conferences this summer. I hope no one comes up on the stage and slaps me. Uh, but we'll... we'll <laughs> We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, listen, we should draw things to, to, to close. Um, so uh, I'd like to thank Rebecca, uh, Michael and Gerald for being with us um, this week and to you for listening. And uh, as I said at the, right at the start, uh, stay tuned because there's a fourth segment coming up after this. <laughs> Hello, welcome to this extra segment of Philosophy Takes on News on the recent spring statement in the UK. Um, as I said at the start, this part is a little bit extra as I won't be recording uh, next week. Um, I'm talking with Philip Goff from the University of Durham, who's rejoining the pod today, having been the very first episode. Hi, Philip. Hello, Simon. Thanks for having me on again. It's, it's great, to, great to have you back. So, uh, yeah, just before we were recording last week's show, the UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak gave his spring statement, which, if people don't know, is a, is a type of mini budget. And I'm sure uh, not just Sunak, but there'll be quite a few chancellors, treasury officials in, in a number of countries that will be scratching their heads and thinking through of various similar issues and, and what they can do to balance budgets and and um, tax and, and spend. Um, it often takes uh, one or more days for some analysis to come out um, of the mini budget um, after the initial reaction. So it seems like a good time to sit down with you, Philip, and, and think through your thoughts. So um, so what are, the, what are the, your things going through your head about this then? Yeah, well, as you say, I think, you know, we, we can move on to bigger issues that might have implications for outside the UK. But just starting with, with the mini budget itself, I mean, the, you know, I think the first thing that struck me is it is, is it wasn't progressive, you know. Um, there was a really good um, diagram from the um, Joseph Joseph Roundtree Foundation, which showed that uh, although the um, specifically the measure the measures on on national insurance were done in a progressive way, yeah, uh, the richest being hit the hardest, that was totally dwarfed by uh, not uprating. Uh, social security in line with the the huge inflation that's yeah. happening now which is you know going to really hit hard we have a massive cut for you know the, you know the poorest families in the country really and you know i think uh, one thing that people you know don't often appreciate that actually that the new economics foundation in commenting on uh, on the mini budget uh, focused on was you know when you have very weak employment support 
that has a really profound knock on knock on effect on on low paid workers right because if you've got really crappy unemployment support then you're not going to people aren't going to be able to take the risk of leaving a really crappy job and so there's no incentive for employers to um put up wages or conditions um i, I really like the line from the cambridge economist hajun chang um who's written a great book uh that people might be interested in, 23 Things They Never Tell You About Capitalism, which is a really accessible little book that was quite influential uh, on my thinking. And, you know, one thing he says is um, unemployment support is is the, is bankruptcy court for the, for the workers, is bankruptcy law for the workers. And so what he means by that is, you know, bankruptcy law is a kind of real indulgence in a way. You know, it means if, if your company goes bankrupt, goes bust, you don't have to pay your debts. And, you know, we're sort of used to that now. But at the time... People thought it was, you know, crazy. It was scandalous that we would let people off their debts. But, you know, we now appreciate, you know, we allow business owners that indulgence for the sake of having a more kind of dynamic economy where people are willing to take risks. Similarly, uh, you know, in, in countries, for example, Scandinavian countries, where you have more generous unemployment support, that allows workers to take risks, to leave crappy jobs, you know, to take a risk for a better job and create some more dynamic economy in that sense. So yes, yeah, so so overall, uh, I mean another thing that Joseph Roundry Foundation said that, you know, for every three pounds he gave it was it was two pounds to the to the the, the, the top fifty percent. So very very first thing to check out, you know, it's not a not a very progressive budget. Yeah, and in fact it's um, a- I mean, we'll probably kind of just be exchanging and trading kind of similar stats with a, from a similar perspective, uh, Philip. But just to throw a few others in that I was reading about in the last uh, couple of days. From I mean, there's all these think tanks and foundations. So from the Resolution Foundation, which is different. I mean, I was I was it, I was I was bowled over by this. So so they're estimating that by the end of this year, probably over one million people in this country, in the UK, which is one of the most you know, richest countries in the world, over 1 million will have been debt to illegal, unregulated uh, companies or, you know, just the guy on the council estate who's doing something really dodgy, right? And, so, and, some, and, and you mm. know, in, in crippling, wow. crippling debt conditions. And in fact, you know, let's be honest, um, with threats of violence, I mean, you know, often... Um, realised. I mean, a million people in this country, let alone what's happened with with food banks over the last ten years. And then, so the Centre for Social Justice, which was which has been founded by Ian Duncan Smith, Ian Duncan Smith, right, Conservative MP now, but of course used to be a yeah. member of the government, was in charge of welfare, um, and they were recommending that this is just unsustainable. In fact, we need to have. You know, uh, really need to be pushing as a, as a policy initiative, non-profit credit unions to get people, I mean, to get, you know, these basically money thugs out of business <laughs> into a regulated um, set of credit unions to, to get people, you know, to give them the, the, the money they need to, um, to survive, frankly. I mean, it's just scandalous what's happening yeah. in this country. Wow, that's, a, that's incredible. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard that partic- those particular stats. But yeah, I mean, but, you know, I mean, kind of just moving more generally and maybe in terms of things that might have implications more more broadly than the UK. I mean, I'm inclined to think, you know, there has never been this unprogressive budget is coming out at a time when there has never been a better both moral and economic case for taxing the wealthy. You know, I mean, I'm kind of from the left of politics. I'm always up for taxing the rich, but I think particularly now, 
I think there, there is such a strong case simply because the super rich have done so well out of COVID. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's the, we we have seen during COVID the the biggest uh, increase in billionaire wealth in the history of this country. You know, so that in the first year of COVID, your average billionaire increased their wealth by six hundred and thirty million. So really profiting from a crisis, and you know that's simply because, uh, as in two thousand and eight, you know through quantitative easing, the government has pumped huge sums of money into the into the economy, to swell, which has swelled asset prices, uh, which has meant that you know that the very rich are even more wealthy, and of course at the same time, more and more people are are um, priced out of the the possibility of, of, of buying their own home. You know, so it's really just, dis- I mean, I actually watched recently, there's a great BBC documentary that I'd recommend to mm-hmm. people. It's still on iPlayer if you're in the UK. Um, the Decade the Rich Won, uh, about, about the, you know, the, the last 12 years. And I mean, just to share some, some stats, uh, a lot of stats today, you know, that, that they finished the show on in the last 12 years since 2010. Um, there's been 61% increase in, in average house prices, whilst at the same time, median earnings are lower. Are lower than 2008, and at the same time, uh, billionaire wealth has increased by 310. percent So you know it's a totally dysfunctional economy, and it's dysfunctional to a large extent because the government has gifted essentially a, a, a load of money to the to, to the super rich. And I mean, just to be clear, I'm not saying quantitative easing shouldn't have happened. I can see the economic. I'm not an economist. I can see the economic case for that we might have avoided the Great Depression after 2008 and, you know, the, the obvious unprecedented difficulties of COVID. But we have to deal with the negative dysfunctional aspect of that, uh, the, the inequality that people being unable to avo- afford their, to buy their own house. You know, I mean, I would like to see, for example, the opposition bringing forward a bill to say, you know, if we're going to use QE, we have to then tax the rich the money they get from that. So, I mean, at least even if that isn't enacted, it would help the public to see the connection there. I, I can't see anybody in the media, the mainstream media, really talking about, you know, the connection between QE and, you know, the, the, the massive wealth of the, the increases in wealth for the super rich at the moment. Yeah, so, I think, you know, just it's just it, not really being spoken about. And just to bring it um, bang up to date, uh, I mean, if you look now about what's happening with energy and looking at the prices of some, so you I mean you've been focusing on individuals, on billionaires, but of course there's companies as well. And thinking about yes. oil and gas companies, I mean, you know, they've been releasing all of their their statements and their profits they've been making. They're huge. Now, in fact, I mean, I'm I'm all for, and this seems very strange that you know if we're going to have a have a, a green revolution and a green economy actually i I mean i'm you may disagree i I think that oil and gas i mean energy companies have to play their part there and and if they're going to use those profits to to invest in in alternative sources of energy great but i'm I'm skeptical that they will (laughs) and and it seems that you know there's plenty of politicians and plenty of others calling for a windfall tax at the moment if only just to, to, to help with energy bills for people who are paying their money, which is generating the profit for oil and gas companies. I mean, that's quite an, an interesting yeah. circle and connection. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was uh, I was pleased the opposition did call for that 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 yeah. windfall tax, and I do seem to at least be talking about a wealth a wealth tax. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know it seems it seems to me that they, they could go much further. You know, one interesting thing about um, 
one of the stars of this documentary I referred to was this um, guy, Gary Stevenson, who was Citibank's most successful trader. And, and he made, and he, that, that success was due to the fact that he, he bettered that there wouldn't be an economic recovery after 2008 because we're not going to deal with this functionality of inequality. Yeah. And he made millions on it. And then at some point said to himself, yeah, I can't live with myself anymore. And um, yeah, and he's got a you know, really great uh, YouTube channel called Gary's Economics, where he, he's now sort of campaigning for a wealth tax. So yeah, I, w- I would like to, see, you know, I think I would like to see, you know, the opposite opposition parties, you know, pressing. I think it's just the right time to press for, um, you know, you know, I mean, the, the kind of, taxes we had in the 50s and 60s which made society much more equal and created an economic boom you know i think the sort of collective consciousness has, uh, has has kind of forgot that you know increasing taxes or having certain sorts of taxes we'll come on to that i think in, in, in a little while because i'll ask you a couple of questions about that it, it actually can help economic performance right i mean the, the problem we've got is inequality of economic situation whatever you call it i mean there's any so i mean to put it in very colloquial terms, there's only so much money a billionaire can spend, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, Absolutely, it, I, I, yeah. I, you, yeah, you know, the poor, you give money to working class people, they're going to spend it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you, you give money to the wealthy, there's only so many yachts you can have. And what do you do with it? You, you buy property to, you know, as an investment and then, you know, the, <laughs> the price of property shoots up. Yeah, another thing, I mean, you know, what we, after 2008, there didn't seem to be inflation in in the way there is now although there was asset price inflation you know how and economists tend to say well that, that kind of inflation doesn't really matter but what this guy you know gary stevenson was saying is well i bet everyone every economist who says house is asset inflation doesn't matter has family with property <laughs> you know yeah. it's there are very few working class people as economists if you you know if you do an economics degree a working class background you tend to go into the city to make money for your family you know so you know i think um yeah thinking about how undiverse economics is in terms of class something uh, philosophers i find don't really talk very much about there's been you know re- recently philosoph- analytic philosophers have done you know, a lot more work on gender and gender identity and, and race and disability, which don't get me wrong, it's all fantastic. And, you know, it's not, there's loads more to be done on on those issues. But there hasn't been much on, on class, I don't think. And, you know, you don't have to be a kind of paid up Marxist to think that class power dynamics play an important role in understanding society and the economy. Um, can, I, can I ask you a, a, a question, Philip? So I was reading something the other day, I mean, a few weeks ago, actually, I think it's probably a preparatory kind of report looking ahead to at that stage to the mini budget and i can't remember where it was it was like new statesman or prospect or, or economist um any editorial teams who want to get in touch with me and give me free subscriptions that would be very nice i'll keep on name checking your magazine anyway so whoever it was and it, and it, and it stuck with me i mean obviously because i'm mentioning it now and they're saying look over the you know you know when you and i were growing up right so the, the political debates the big pol- and the big policy debates were all about um higher taxes or lower taxes right and of course there was a big history of that i mean you've mentioned 50s 60s but they were saying look we're reaching a point now because of big external factors that you know any politician's going to have to deal with which is going to change the landscape so the big factors are you know something will have to happen with energy security and food security in various countries 
and something's happening with the population because we've got an aging population in many countries. We've got, you know, proportionately the, the number of working age people is, is decreasing. People will need to be supported, will need to invest in, in the economy and make big changes. So uh, the, po- the policy discussions won't so much be tax high or tax low. It will be, you know, a certain amount of tax. And the big policy discussions will be what we're taxing. And I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering, you know, what what, what you think about that, and and then how that how that how those policy discussions might go. Absolutely. Well, you know, a big influence on me, the economist Thomas Piketty, who uh, you know, yeah. After that, we did have high high rates of headline tax um, in the 50s and 60s, but what we really haven't ever seriously taxed wealth. You know, even in Scandinavian countries, and uh, you know that the, the, there's no economic case, there's no moral case for it. You know, I mean, if you're going to tax I mean, why tax labor, which obviously there's some to some extent that disincentivizes people. And, um, and you know, there's a natural kind of moral sense. So I've worked for it. You know, why not tax land? I mean, land is sort of the least tax thing. And, you know, I mean, especially in England, where one percent own half the land, largely because their ancestors were mates with uh, William the Conqueror, who, you know, took all the land off the peasants. And there's absolutely no moral claim at all on that. Yeah, I mean, I think this, you know, taxing wealth and land much more significantly. I mean, what I've pressed for, actually, in an an article with Navarra Media that people might be interested in reading is the idea of, um, which pressed by Henry George, of having a really significant land tax in order to afford to to fund universal basic income, right? So, yeah. I mean, the idea is people think with with universal basic income, people think, why are you giving people money for nothing? But I think we should think we each have an equal claim on the on the land of this country. I mean, forget the international situation for a second, which which obviously is important, but makes things more complicated. You know, we each have an equal claim on the land, and so if we're going to allow, uh, you know, someone to have thousands of tens of thousands of times more than their fair share because they were ans- their ancestors of William the Conqueror, then I am owed compensation for that in the form of universal basic income. Yes. I mean, Piketty's got some interesting proposals such as actually universal inheritance. Each person on their 21st birthday, each citizen uh, receives a, a, um, a certain percentage of average wealth. But yeah, so I think, I mean, look, I think that's, that, that's part of it. I think, but I think actually... I think actually a large part of it might be certain philosophical errors as well. A large part of it, you know, I, I think I've been, you know, thinking about this made me think: Why are we so reluctant to tax? You know, why are ta- putting up taxes so unpopular? And I think part of it might be a kind of philosophical error. Actually, I think mm-hmm. it's so hard to shake the idea that my pre-tax income, my gross income, is sort of my money in the sense I have some right to it, some claim to it. And, you know, when the government taxes me, it's taking my money off me. Um, You know, the extreme of this is people who think tax is theft on the sort of Ayn Rand uh, part of the argument. But even I think kind of centre-left politicians who might believe in relatively higher taxes still tend to think, you know, taxation is some kind of imposition and so it's it's only justified because it's balanced for the need for investing in public services or something. So, you know, every, I think everyone has this idea that we have some kind of moral claim on our pre-tax income. But I just think that's that's a totally confused starting point when you, when you really think it through. It makes no sense. So you think, you know, 
if I'm supposed to have this kind of right to my pre-tax income, I think we need to ask it, what, is it, what kind of right is it? Is it a legal right or is it a moral right? Okay. And it's clearly not a legal right because you're legally obliged to pay tax on it, right? You go to prison if you don't, hopefully, unless you're wealthy. But it, it, so is it a moral right? Well, surely not, because I mean, to my mind, that implies that, that that would go along with the thought that the market distribution of wealth, I mean, your pre-tax income is just what the market yields to you. And so if we think, you know, I have a moral claim on my pre-tax income, that seems to me to imply that the the market distribution of wealth is gives to each person exactly what they deserve. <laughs> and, you know, nobody thinks that. You know, nobody thinks like, a, you know, a city trader should have, you know, many times more than a scientist working on a, you know, a, a vaccine for the pandemic or something. Or, you know, I mean, in, in the case of what we've been talking about, that I don't think many people would think that the super rich deserve little, if any, of the money they've got just from having assets, especially not when it's they've inflated because of the government's pumped loads of money into them. So actually, I think that when you think about it carefully, I, if, you know, with the kind of clarity philosophers, I hope, give to this, you know, I think the government has a duty not to respect pre-tax incomes, which is the market distribution of wealth, but to correct them. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a there's, there, there there is a role for philosophy here in helping us to think more clearly about these things. Okay, uh, good. So can can I just push you on that then, Philip? Yeah, right. Sorry, it was quite a long long monologue there, wasn't it? That's sorry. fine. That's fine. So I I'll, I'll cut it down. Don't <laughs> worry, you'll be fine. So I, I have absolute power on on this yeah. podcast. Um, but yeah, just, <laughs> just, just three to... seconds when. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's come out as tax the rich. That's that's all. So yeah, just, <laughs> just to push you a bit on that. So just coming at a slightly different different angle, right? So I mean, because because you mentioned earlier on, you know, some people think they have a kind of there's a kind of strong intuition. It's my money. You know, I've worked for it. You know, it's it, it's mine. And of course, you know, and, and many people do do have that. In fact, you and I probably have probably have that intuition somewhere, right? But we probably also got an intuition. No, I love tax. Did you? <laughs> if you if you think carefully, then I mean, unless you're kind of like you know very strange, someone who thinks, uh, "Hey, I've earned all of it, and you can't take any any of it from me," you know, the state, you know, the tax man. Um, you'll think, well, actually, yes, I'm in this situation, which is kind of a historical accident, and there's all sorts of foreground and background conditions that enable me to earn this amount of money. You know, what my parents have done, what people have done to create universities that you and I both work at, or, you know, what people have done to create the economy. And I just happen to be here. But I don't just happen to be here. I've kind of made some choices as well. And I said, I get up in the morning and I do some work. And, and, you know, we can tell a story about many people. So in fact, actually, so so does it come down to, um, you know, I've got some claim on on this money, but just not 100%. But similarly, I've kind of done something for it. So similarly, the state hasn't got 100% claim on it either. So really what we should be arguing about is thinking about where that balance lies. And I'm kind of both extremes are kind of obviously wrong. But, it, you know, we're talking about, you know, basically, you know, what's morally justifiable for me to keep and for the state to to take. But but what do you think about that? Yeah, y- y- yes and no. I mean, what you seem to be assessing, I think, is an important part of it. It's kind of what I call the Obama argument. You know, Obama used to say, you know, you, you don't, you're not just a totally self-made person. You know, you're some way reliant on the state. But I think actually the point is deeper than that. I think it's, I think the problem is we tend to think 
we tend to slip into this thing of thinking that property rights are, are sort of part of the natural order. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, uh, you know, my property is sort of mine by right. And um, whereas, of course, it's a property is, a, is, is just a totally social, total social construction. Right. So I, I like to bastardize Christ at this point. Property rights are made for man, man, not not man for property rights. You know, property rights are just social constructions and we can shape them how we want. If we if it is a society want to make that someone's right to income conditional on pre- paying the payment of tax, then then the obligation to pay tax becomes an inextricable part of of your of that person's right on their income. So it's not like the way we tend to think of it, like you you know you have your right to income, and then the government comes along and taxes you. No, no, the very right to income already involves um, the the obligation to pay tax. So so look, I, I mean, I agree with you. You know, we, we we look. I think what we want to think fundamentally is what do people deserve and. And what you know, so I'm not saying everyone should have exactly the same. I'm certainly not saying the state should take all the money. You know, I'm saying we should be thinking. We should be thinking. Uh, you know, what what should people have? Should you know, it, 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 to the extent that people, some people should have more than others. Uh, how, how much is justified? Working harder, maybe being a bit further in your career, doing a particularly impressive contribution to society, or whatever. We should work that out, and then shape our, no, our our property rights and our tax system to try and meet that goal. That's what I mean, like property rights are made for humankind, not the other way around. Uh, but I mean, the way you're talking, it still sounded a little bit like we're still thinking, oh, I, I some sense have a right to my money, but not to all of it. But I still think that's sort of conceptually confused a little bit, if, if you don't mind. <laughs> Sorry, it sounds a bit harsh. But I think, you know, really, w- w- it's we should start off not thinking about property rights at all, thinking about what does a just society look like, and then, which might involve a bit of inequality, fine, and then shape our system of property to achieve that end. That's that's the way I I think we need to think about it. Although it's a bit, I, I, I used to press this a lot. I mean, people, I've got an article with uh, tax justice network pressing this and i used to press it a lot but it's a bit complicated <laughs> and so i've actually found actually and this is my, my navara media article it's it's just easier to just say talk about land actually and, and how unjust because you know people do naturally think with, with with tax on labor you know they just feel some injustice to that and it's hard to uh you know but just the, the thinking about tax on labor you know why should some people have thousands of you know, actually, if, if you know, if land was equally distributed, would each have an acre? Why should people have tens of thousands of acres just because of their answer? So yeah, so I tend these days to focus more on that in, um, you know, popular articles on this kind of stuff, rather than the more what, what I've just been talking about, which I think is the sort of philosophical truth, but it's a bit subtle. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I agree with you that it, I mean, it's just a it's it's a kind of curiosity for us and many other countries where we've just got into a into a situation where so much of the tax system is based on labor and not on what one might, I mean, you said land, but I mean, really it's about unearned wealth in effect, right? I mean, yeah. Land and, and yeah. yeah. It's, it's a very, it's kind of, if you take a step back, it's just really strange yeah. that that's the case. Do you know what? The, yeah. I think people don't know though, do they? they? People don't know that once you have a few million, you have in, income from having income, you know, yeah. and you're taxed very little on it. You know, a chancellor has what two hundred million. You know, he'll have, you know, a substantial amount annual income just from having that. 
And um, yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it is, you know, people have not known what what the alternative is for a long time. I think with the crash of 2008, there wasn't a sort of a sense of an alternative there. You know, what I what I'm excited by recently is is economists who are coming up with you know, I mean, it's always been the criticism of the kind of left is okay. What's your alternative? What? what? But um, economists now arguing, developing in great detail an alternative uh, post-capitalist kind of economy. You know, Thomas Piketty, his huge last book, uh, Capital and Ideology. You might it might be a bit daunting to read all of it, but you could just cut to the last chapter where he lays out detailed proposals and for what he calls participatory socialism and. Yanis Varoufakis's novel, Another Now, which uh, which is about an alternative reality. People open up this wormhole, which takes us to an alternative reality, which branched off in 2008. And the people in that alternative reality seized the moment of the 2008 crash and built a post-capitalist society. And really, it's an excuse for Varoufakis to lay out in great detail his ideas of um how we could run a post-capitalist society, which, which incidentally does not, in his, in his perfect society, does not have taxes on on labour. Um, taxes instead are the more appropriate things. But, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that there's all the solutions here, but starting to think about, and you don't have to necessarily go the whole hog of thinking we need to move beyond capitalism, but it's not it's not capitalism or anti or non-capitalism it's you know after the war we had much more of a, a mixed economy where we had a highly constrained highly regulated capitalism and you know with high taxes at the top and it went bloody well you know you know my parents generation the luckiest generation that ever lived and um and then you know from the 80s onwards we've had this kind of wild west capitalism that's not gone awfully well i think that's that's my simple political philosophy look at the last 20 years 70 years sorry and divided into two and um anyway yeah yeah great listen uh thanks we, we better leave it leave it there it's been really good to catch up with you and and uh chat so thanks very much for joining us and all being well we'll have you back on the pod uh before long um and thanks to you for listening and hope you can join us for our next episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.